Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Sleep where? Sleep anywhere, that's what I say, whenever you can. This far into lockdown, my main daily motivation when I wake up is knowing that it's only 15 hours or so before I get to go back to bed again. And when so many of us are currently spending so much time in our PJs, or if you're an important key worker, needing some comfy ones for the scarce moments you get to wear them, British Boxers are the properly ethically sound independent shop for undies and nightwear that you'll probably also wear in the day for quite some months yet. They have everything from hipster briefs, which I assume have their own beards and cutoffs, uh, to pyjama separates in case um, your pyjamas don't get on well enough to hang out together. Okay, look, I'm clearly not an expert, but having got some of their nightwear, I promise it's well comfy. And if you make an order at British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10, then you'll get 10% off anything you buy. Hey, you might accuse me of being in the pockets of big pyjama, and I would say, yes, yes I am. And it's very, very snug in here. Join me. Join me. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy and politics podcast that will never get cancelled as that would require someone approving of it in the first place. I'm Tin and Yeb, and this week as Home Secretary and woman who thinks of Hieronymus Bosch paintings when she imagines her happy place, Pretty Patel, says that she found some of the footage of the events on Clapham Common on Saturday upsetting, I bet she meant all of the moments before the police got violent and everything was peaceful. There's a lot of valid concern that many of the Conservative government's actions have not just echoes of fascism, but a word-for-word recital of them like it was their project at school and they're doing a special assembly about it. But I wonder if actually their ethos is more of a sort of extreme nihilism, as many of their methods to solve society's ills appear to be about just stopping those that are upset about them and that way the issue is no longer a problem. You know, like solving an equation by bombing all of the numbers so you don't have to add anything up anymore. Take the events of Saturday, for example, at the vigil for Sarah Everard, the young woman hugely upsettingly and horrifically murdered last week while walking home at night, for which a police officer has been accused of. The Metropolitan Police decided that the best way to deal with the concerns of women who felt unsafe was simply to arrest all of them for being peaceful, and then that way they'll be in prison and won't be able to go out at night anymore. 
I mean, in many ways, it does make sense, doesn't it? Why go to the effort of funding the legal system and actually prosecuting men for crimes of rape and harassment when all those who are unhappy about it have gathered together so you can just get rid of them in one go and then all your mates and colleagues can roam around at night as they please, picking off anyone who's not that bothered about being murdered? And if anything, it shows the police believe in equality as it's now not just people of colour who feel threatened by them. Of course, a spokesperson for the Met Police said that they didn't want to slam unarmed women into the ground headfirst and trample on flowers left for a murder victim, but they were placed in that position by the overriding need to protect people's safety. Yes, of course, they have to keep the public safe from thinking that demonstrations or peaceful vigils are reasonable examples of a democracy, otherwise everyone will want to go and then they'll just have more work to do and problems to deal with. Met Police Commissioner and perfect example of nominative determinism, Cressida Dick, said that had the vigil been legal, even she'd have attended. I mean, that's fair, right? A High Court judge ruled that it was legal, but what do they know? I mean, have they ever even seen a law before? We're all tired of experts, as you know, and the last thing we want is a judge telling us what's legal or not. What next? Asking your barber for advice on hairstyles when you could just walk headfirst into a hedge trimmer and see what happens? If it wasn't legal, then that means when the Duchess of Cambridge attended the vigil earlier in the day, then she broke the law. So I am looking forward to seeing the Mets storming the palace to make that arrest. Oh, no, wait, she's the white one, isn't she? Oh, yeah, sorry, guess she did nothing wrong then. The Met Commissioner saying she'd only be in attendance for legal activities does largely make it sound like she's just avoiding doing any work. Oh, sorry, I couldn't respond to your 999 call as that burglary didn't sound legal. But it's also one of Cressida Dick's traits to only clamp down on people wanting to do things safely. I mean, God forbid anyone who just wants to catch the tube on her watch, like poor Jean-Charles de Menzies did. She probably has a list on her office wall of all the worst crimes possible that feature going to the shops without getting run over, or daring to brush your teeth and having the gall not to be eaten by a tiger. If only those women on Saturday had eschewed wanting to walk in their own areas without feeling unsafe and instead celebrated football results violently, pissed on a memorial or marched for white supremacy, then everyone could have just had a lovely time and the Met would have had a nice day full of community participation activities. Politicians across the very narrow political board said they found what happened on Saturday upsetting or disturbing. Even the Prime Minister and jellyfish atop a pile of horse dung, Boris Johnson, said that he was deeply concerned, presumably because he thinks if women are feeling unsafe, then it's just a personal matter and calling the police is over the top and none of your business. Pretty Patel has demanded a full report from the Metropolitan Police, probably with loads of questions as to why no one was gassed or shot, despite her really clear hints. Member of all the backbench groups whose expertise is in having absolutely no expertise in anything and T1000 without any of the cool parts, Steve Baker, said that they were unspeakable scenes and the Prime Minister has to end the lockdown law now because as we know if the pubs were open then he'd have been able to forget women existed in the first place while he drank several pints and bored someone with his views on Austrian economics. Even Labour leader and commercial upright stainless steel refrigerator single-door ventilated cooling Adexa SR600, Keir Starmer, said he shared the protesters' anger and upset because, you know, he doesn't have emotions of his own. He wouldn't call for Cresta Dick's resignation, though, as that's only reserved for members of his own party who tweet. Cresta Dick said that she feels for her officers as they are policing during a pandemic, so I guess, you know, that means they have to wash their hands for 20 seconds after every time they manhandle a black teenager, and that's got to be hard. She said no one should be sitting back in an armchair saying what they'd have done differently, presumably because it's quite hard to find and arrest people in their own homes if they do that, whereas if they all peacefully protest about it, then she'll be able to round them up and have them locked up, which would be preferable. 
I sympathise because obviously policing is a difficult job, right? And that's why it's so nice that the government are pushing through the all-new policing bill, which will allow police to clamp down on things like violence against women, as long as those doing the violence are also damaging a statue of Winston Churchill at the same time. Or if it's a statue of a woman that they're bothering in the first place, but luckily there aren't many of those, so that should help the cops with workload. Police will have plows to tackle disruptive protests that cause distress, alarm or annoyance. Terrible for the vital element of democracy that is the right to protest, but at the same time I may be able to call the police to arrest my agent, sorry, daughter, when she next screams and screams in the street because she just doesn't want to walk anymore. After the past year it may also be the most affordable way to get childcare too. This is, of course, win-win for the ever-high-polling Conservatives. Their voters care about crimes against emotionless, non-sentient sculptures as they feel a familiarity towards them, so ten years in jail for defacing one works well. And the thought of people being angry and making noise that they can hear through the double glazing of their third summer house really ruins their day. Meanwhile, a lack of time or resources to deal with proper crimes will mean young people can see it as a viable future prospect amongst the sea of unemployment, and should any swing voters get upset that the police keep mowing everyone down that reads out a louder letter from points of view, then the government can say actually they cut the force by nearly 24,000 officers, so they had the foresight to protect the public in the first place. It's that ability to cover all bases that the Johnson's government just excels at, isn't it? For International Women's Week last week, they could have done the odd token gesture, but no, they went all out and had a, and had police ruin a vigil for a victim of femicide. And then Lord Bethel, Death Star Commander, insisted nurses, a profession where 9 out of 10 in the UK are women, should be happy with an inadequate pay rise because they're paid well for what the job is. Yes, I mean, he probably does believe that keeping people alive isn't worth much as someone who looks like he snacks on souls. The government supported women's independence by not bothering to send any embassy help to accompany Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe to her new trial in Tehran. Nazanin, a woman that was only in prison for five years because Boris Johnson didn't think her job was important, was ordered to appear on charges of propaganda against the regime, something that not only has she not done, but also wouldn't have needed to do as Iran have managed to score several own goals on that front with the ordeal that they've put her and her family through in the first place. It's like stamping on a line of ants and then accusing those ants of propaganda that makes you look like an ant killer. Foreign Secretary and what if your whole face was a nostril, Dominic Raab, said that they will continue to do everything they can to support Nazanin, except that is, asking the British Embassy in Iran to accompany her. Boris Johnson has called for Nazanin's immediate release, but as she's been accused of propaganda, it's once again completely irresponsible for him to use language that makes it sound like she's announcing a news statement. You can't say the government haven't spent money supporting women either, as they've gone above and beyond to throw money at keeping Grange Hill extra Baroness Dido Harding in a job. The Public Accounts Committee revealed the NHS Test and Trace Service has had no clear impact, despite now costing £37 billion, or the equivalent of one and a half channel tunnels, but if they'd never posted any signs to where the Eurostar was, not sold anyone any tickets, and the tunnel itself was actually a ring with no clear way to enter or leave. The recent Mars Perseverance mission where they landed an actual robot on actual Mars only cost $2.9 billion and they've probably got more chance of finding life than Harding's test and trace system has of who you saw in the pub when you had that cough that time. Test and Trace was set up on the basis that it would help prevent future lockdowns, but there's been two more lockdowns since it was started, so the only way it's going to stop any more from happening is by removing so much money from the economy that no one can afford to stay at home anymore. Harding said that Test and Trace is making a real impact in breaking the chains of transmission, which is true, as no one's been able to contact anyone to say that they might have caught COVID-19. 
Coronavirus cases in the UK are continuing to fall, as are hospitalizations and the daily death rate, which is great. But the head of Office for National Statistics and star of Pixar's Up, Professor Sir Ian Diamond, has said that there will no doubt be another wave of infections in the autumns. But I guess at least lockdowns won't be as long then, as the days will be shorter. The European Medical Agency are having an extraordinary meeting this week, which sadly doesn't mean attendees will be hovering, riding unicorns or doing magic, but just that it wasn't on their schedule. Boring. The meeting is all about the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, as Germany, France, Italy and Spain have halted use after concerns it was linked to blood clots. But they should know there aren't any, as the cabinet didn't have anything to do with making it. The government has delayed post-Brexit import paperwork checks that were due next month and in July until October and next year, and yet another example of why that Get Ready for Brexit advert should only have been plastered inside Westminster and absolutely nowhere else. Brexit minister and eroded Patrick Starr, Lord David Frost, has blamed this on coronavirus complicating things, but that can't be true, as if the pandemic could have a direct effect on what's happening at the borders, then it'd still have closed them way before Boris Johnson did. The EU is beginning legal action against the UK's breach of the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's really a shame it's a protocol and not a statute, or under the policing bill, the government may well give themselves 10 years in jail for breaching it. Johnson visited Northern Ireland at the end of the week among tension with the DUP, who want him to scrap the protocol entirely and said it will create division and harm, which is odd as I was certain that was basically their party's motto. In other news, the housing minister and hot water bottle filled with spam, Robert Jenrick, has said there will be an inquiry on the development of a new coal mine in Cumbria, which could lead to it not happening at all. Great news, as the government have given rise to far too many polluting boreholes already. Local Conservatives have complained about this, as they say that to drive the green agenda, you will need steel, and for steel, you need coal. Yes, of course, and then the coal will cause more pollution, and you'll need more steel to fix it, and then more coal to make the steel, and then we'll all be dead, and they'll have won because they died in a bigger house than you. The government are investing £95 million in two new offshore wind ports, which Conservative MP for Sutton and Cheam and victim of face-doodling Paul Scully insisted during a news interview was a great opportunity using British jobs, British manufacturing and British wind. Yes, that's definitely how weather works, Paul. Of course we only have British wind over here, that's why it's always cold and unreasonably pushy. Unless, of course, I've got this wrong, and Scully was revealing the new fart-driven power industry, which will work really well when right now it smells like there's always something rotten going on in the government. A National Day of Reflection is happening next Tuesday to mark the anniversary of the UK's first lockdown, where all we had to do was stay inside, look at ourselves in the mirror and watch as we very rapidly went grey. It's been backed by the Prime Minister who doesn't have a reflection and hence why his hair is always like that and various buildings and landmarks will be illuminated which is fucking pointless as we'll all still be in lockdown and can't go and see them. There will be a minute silence at midday, presumably because if anyone made a noise they could be arrested for causing annoyance. And £3 billion is being put towards improving bus services in one of the governments you wait for them to steal one policy from Labour's 2019 manifesto and they nick three at once run. They've decided the slogan for the policy is Bus Back Better, which not only doesn't really make sense, if it does make sense, it sounds like you're only going to have a decent trip on your way home from wherever you've gone, but the way there isn't worth mentioning. A cynic might suggest that this policy is because of upcoming local elections, but I reckon it's actually because Boris Johnson is running out of places to put all of his lies. Fucking hell, what a week to try and write jokes about. Ugh. 
and so many people with shitty opinions about all of it everywhere. Why is it we as a country have such an issue with understanding that other people have different experiences to us? Um, I mean, babies grasp object permanence when they're between sort of four to seven months old, and yet it seems tons of adults regularly struggle with it in relation to the rest of humanity. Well, I've never been harassed on the street. Yeah, because you're a 50-year-old man who lives at sea. Well, I've never felt unsafe at night where I live. Yes, because you're always asleep by 8pm and related to everyone in your village. Ugh. As a man, I find it exhausting. I can't even come close to imagining what it's been like for women this past week, or, well, all of their life. Though I suppose to fit in with society, I should say, well, I've never been bothered by it, so that must mean none of you ever have, because everyone lives exactly the same life as me with your beards and diabetes that you've got. Yeah, it's really upsetting. Among all the many horrific opinions, one that I found so baffling uh, was the complaint that, that Sarah Everard's disappearance was, was being too politicised, which is an odd one, right? It's, it's kind of impossible not to, isn't it? I mean, crime in general is political and often due to an underfunded legal system, underfunded care system, poverty, uh, which is caused by political choices, and so on and so on and so on. And then violence against women, that's due to years of toxicity in politics and society, the patriarchal system, the class system, a lack of educating boys properly in school about consent, cuts to funding for women's refugees, it's all political, all of it. I mean, when the police were called on the Prime Minister because neighbours were worried his girlfriend was in danger due to the distressing noises they heard, those neighbours were outed as Labour voters by the papers and told to keep to their own business. I'm just saying, it's all political, isn't it? And that's my excuse for talking about it on this podcast anyway. I didn't, you know, wish I didn't have to. It's miserable. What a miserable fucking week. My uncle, um, and I appreciate this is quite a tangent, he once saved a rather famous jazz DJ's job uh, when some years ago that jazz DJ made comments about the political nature of a music track, which was apparently against the broadcaster's regulations. Um, my uncle wrote them a very long letter explaining about how jazz and its origins are inherently political, originating as a form of musical expression from African-American communities in New Orleans during times of slavery and oppression. And anyway, long story short, DJ got to carry on hosting his show. Oh, do you remember when letters worked as a thing? Good times, eh? Good times. Anyway, I don't know why I brought that up. I just uh, I found it very hard to know what to talk about or say or write about this past week um, as I've just found it very bleak and upsetting. Um, and I saw like lots of people going, why aren't you know men or other people speaking about this? And it was like, I don't know what to say. It's all making me feel very miserable. And I also just have this feeling of like saying something on social media. I don't know if it helps. It's not really ever the platform to persuade people of anything. Is it, you know, that the people on there are either sort of in the right mind or they're just there to cause trouble and troll and you sending them one tweet isn't going to change things I sort of feel like there's a lot more scope in doing good things in real actual life and just being nicer to each other not being callous selfish arseholes and listening um, and, and letting other people speak when uh, when you know it, it affects them I mean, we've got a thing with Comedy Club for Kids that I co-run um, uh, where we just make sure we never ever book acts that we've heard any sort of concerning issues about or that have made other acts feel unsafe or audience feel unsafe we we make sure we everyone we book has safe travel. We try and make all our bills varied and diverse. We pay everyone within a week. And apart from me doing it right now, we just never go on about it. We just make sure that we're not shit. We just try very hard not to be shit. Uh, uh, anyway, I just occasionally have this weird dream that one day society will be okay and this podcast will all be about my favourite pickles or something nice. 
Wouldn't that? That's the dream, isn't it? That's the dream. I hope you're doing all right. I hope you've got through this past week okay. Um, I'll give you a bit of plus news. I mean, it's plus news for me. Very selfish. It's what we need this week. It's selfishness. Jesus Christ. Um, and plus, and I had my vaccine jab last week, my first one. Um, it was very easy. I agreed to be exposed to gamma radiation. Then I felt a bit funny, got very angry, turned green, tore my trousers. Um, but other than that, all fine, actually. Um, no, I'm joking. It was, it was very easy. I had the Oxford AstraZeneca one, the one that's banned in Germany. I'm now illegal in Germany, which I suppose I am anyway because of Brexit. But anyway, um, I had that one and then I got some real shivers that night and then the next day I felt like shit with aches and stuff like that. But not enough like shit to get to spend the whole day in bed. Um, instead, I just pa- sort of had a lot of paracetamol and then complained about it a lot while my agent decided to help me feel better by jumping on me from the sofa arm. Um, that was her thing. This will help you, daddy. And then she'd just fly off the sofa arm straight into me, uh, causing me immense pain. Toddlers are absolutely the worst doctors. Please, I, I hope that we don't get to a point where they're the only people the NHS can hire as doctors because it will be awful for everyone. Fact. Uh, but I'm all better now, though, um, and even more so because you are listening to my waffle. Um, honestly, nothing would help the past week than more opinions from middle-aged white dudes, yeah? Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for being here. Big thanks this week as well to um, Fatone. Do you know what? I, I know Fatone through the socials for many years, and I still don't know if it's Fatoni or Fat One or Fatone. But for this, it's Fatone. Thank you very much for donating to the ACAST support button. Um, also, James, Anne-Marie and Joe, who donated to the Kofi, and Zirash, who has joined the Patreon crew. Thank you, Zirash. Um, and uh, they did that just as I uploaded last week's episode, and I couldn't fit them in. Um, so sorry for the belated week later thank you um anyway thank you you're all amazing and if any of you um listening fancy helping me keep up my addiction to blood diamonds sorry i mean help sponsor the podcast definitely nothing to do with blood diamonds shit i wasn't meant to say that out loud um then if you can donate a few blood diamonds ah fuck sorry i mean pounds to the uh, ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro the patreon.com forward slash parpol bro or a car supporter button then i will be forever grateful um or at least uh, grateful for a bit anyway more than you think is necessary at the very least um if you can't do that obviously no no one can rule broke um, then you can instead review the podcast on any of them podcast platforms where you get this sound from and most of all if you can just tell anyone ever that this thing exists then that helps it tons um, I've seen loads of people be all sad this week that the mass report has been cancelled uh, which is a chat for another show and I'm very sorry for all those uh, that were involved in it um, and anyway all those people online have bemoaned there's no satire anymore and it's taken all my strength not to just post them links to this show um, which I haven't done because I'm not a total dick which is the name of Krista's brother apparently but I'm not t- it just it takes uh, an absolute shamelessness to just go have my podcast um, but if you fancy posting a link to this show as a reply to those people instead then that is definitely allowed and not dickish behaviour at all <laughs> right uh, that is it for this week's podcast admin podmin as it's known um, on this episode however I had a great chat uh, with writer and film critic Helen O'Hara about her excellent new book Women vs Hollywood because um, it turns out the film industry has issues with equality too what yeah I know who'd have thought um, there was a trailer for a new film uh, that we saw the other day Chaos Walking uh, where Daisy Ridley plays a woman who lands on a planet where all the other women are dead and Tom Holland has to save her and my wife exclaimed they've worked out yet another way to have only one woman in a film again and we both laughed and then felt very sad anyway um, in the middle it's all about the new policing bill um, that by the time you hear this will have had its second reading voted through yes it will they've got an 80 seat majority and that's just too many for ghosts to visit overnight and change the minds off before the vote on Tuesday Oscar Wilde wrote that life imitates art far more than art imitates life okay but if that's true then why have I still not been bitten by a radioactive spider despite all of my efforts Don't you dare say the Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't art. Don't you dare.
Until the pandemic had its red carpet premiere and proved to be globally popular despite endless negative reviews, the influence of cinema on the world has been a pretty big one through the 20th and 21st centuries so far. I mean, you've definitely got a favourite film, haven't you? Or 12? And there's probably large chunks of your brain that could contain really useful information, but instead are filled to the brim with quotes about space stations not being moons or making offers that people just can't refuse. Yet, while much of Hollywood's history as we know it is just classic scenes or great lines, the reality is the movie industry's story, much like many of its films, is all about reducing and undercrediting the parts that women, or in fact anyone who's not a white bloke, have played in its ongoing success. This not very behind the scenes discrimination has been highlighted by many recent campaigns and of course when emails containing a huge disparity of wages between male and female co-stars at Sony Pictures were leaked by hackers that made Tom Holland look amateur. But Hollywood wasn't like this at its inception. No, not the Nolan film. It definitely was by that, as they decided it just wasn't realistic for women to be in dreams. I mean, what I mean is at its very start, the movie industry had so many influential leading women in front of and behind the camera. And yet now their stories have been largely erased. Yes, actual cancel culture. Not that nonsense we keep hearing about where grifters are upset that people don't like them being racist anymore. So, has Hollywood influenced sexism within society, or did it let the patriarchal structures found in politics and industry write its script for it? And are things actually changing for the better now, or is it forever doomed to be Batman? You know, an endless cycle of unnecessary reboots where it's exactly the same story again and again, even though we're all very bored of hearing about angry rich men now. This week, I spoke to film critic, journalist and writer Helen O'Hara, who you may well know from all her work in Empire magazine and on the Empire Film podcast. Her book, Women vs. Hollywood, was released last month and looks at the many, many influential women in the movie industry whose histories and impact on cinema have since been erased, leading to years of a sexist, overly male-led industry with unequal pay or respect for their female counterparts. It's a brilliantly uh, written read. I've absolutely been loving reading it. Um, It was Radio 4's book of the week last week. And Helen's research and the stories of the women that she spotlights are frustrating, infuriating and so often just also remarkable. Um, As I mentioned to Helen in the interview, I am still completely in awe of the career of Nell Shipman, who I knew nothing about beforehand. And I have so far spent far too much time looking up details uh, of her films and her pet grizzly bear. Yes, really. She had a pet grizzly bear. She used to bring it on sets to do uh, scenes with bears in. Anyway, uh, read it. It's brilliant. Anyway. Um, I spoke to Helen uh, last Tuesday before all of the shit of the past week, so none of that is discussed. Um, But considering how most of the news since then has been about women getting undermined in society, everything that we spoke about just feels even more relevant. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did when talking to Helen. Here she is. Helen, um, it's great to have you on the show today. I've been really, really enjoying um, your book, Women versus Hollywood. I, it's a sort of funny thing to say, enjoying, and yet also <laughs> constantly going, oh my God, I can't believe that they were so... It, that, one of the things that Gloria uh, Swanson, mm. for example, just uh, having a contract that said she couldn't have children out of wedlock, and to just imagine that level of control over someone's life now is uh, truly horrifying. Um, anyway, but I want to talk to you lots about your book uh, as, as we speak, but I, I suppose the first thing I want to ask about is, it's fascinating reading your book now when we're in a situation where there's all these headlines about supposed culture mm. wars and cancel culture and history being erased. Um, and what your book shows is it's very evident that the history of women in Hollywood and film has actually been erased mm. uh, very successfully, uh, depressingly, for many, many years. And I, I just wanted that, that why, um, and, until your book and some of the studies you mentioned in this book, why were all these women's quite incredible careers being ignored? Well, yeah, there's quite a few reasons. So first of all, there is just sexism. Like, let's be straight up front about it. Sexism is a factor in all of this. Um, but also, I think there was an element of uh, timing. So a lot of the women, certainly in the early part of the book that I talk about, who were able to work as directors and producers and have their own studios, 
we're part of this silent era and um, we're working at the very dawn of filmmaking. And when sound came in, there was this really collective effort really by Hollywood to try to move away from all of that and almost hide the whole silent era. Like it was their embarrassing teenage photos with the, with the spots and the braces and everything else. And, and they didn't want to acknowledge that that had really happened. And so as a corollary of that, all the women who had worked in that era got kind of left out. But that said, you know, we still did have stories from Charlie Chaplin and we still had stories from Max Sennett and all of these people were remembered. D.W. Griffiths, Cecil B. DeMille. Um, so there was also just a concerted attempt to make film seem more professional by leaving out the women because that was kind of an aberration at the time to have all of these women in positions of power because like women couldn't even vote for the most part. So it just seemed weird or maybe they just got the vote by the time this was happening. You know, it, it, it seemed weird and it seemed wrong that there had been so many senior women in so many positions of importance and, and it was kind of an embarrassment. So it was best to just leave them aside. It's one of the things that you sort of mentioned in your book. It was about when, when film became an industry because women couldn't be part yeah. of an industry and when it was just an almost a hobby or a, you know just a creative pastime that it was quite all right for them to be part of it. So it's, it's kind yeah. of when Hollywood became a business that it all went yeah. downhill for women. Yes, exactly. You had the big, big money kind of coming in from New York, um, all of these huge investors. You know, when we, when we stopped talking about thousands of dollars and started talking about millions of dollars, basically, and the studios became a sort of industrial conveyor belt of products, um, as, as Martin Scorsese would probably have it, or content, <laughs> as he would be horrified to say, that's when women were sort of pushed out because that's when it became an embarrassment. So, you know, women like Alice Guy Blachet and Lois Weber had essentially had their own little studios and their own little setups. And they had been able to to make films in that in that sense. But the films were getting longer and more expensive. So you had to, you couldn't just churn out a hundred in a week anymore, kind of thing. Slight exaggeration, but only slightly. Um you had to have a you know a bigger investment in each one and that meant more money coming in and that meant they weren't really willing to invest that money in women. So yeah, it, I, I think money, I mean, there is some debate around, among proper historians, which I do not count myself among, um, but there, basically money seems to be the big problem that women had. It's, it was amazing as well. I thought that one of those things that you just mentioned there that sort of making nearly 100 films a week, but, uh, you know, there's this this whole lie about where women aren't cut to be directors and it's so tough. And actually it sounds like it got easier <laughs> once men took over because these women were doing <laughs> things like, was it Nell Shipman who brought her own pet grizzly on the set? I was just reading this going, this sounds like the most hardcore thing I've ever heard. Um, but, you know, these intense film schedules and doing their own stunts and all these incredible things. And then suddenly, as you said, longer films, bigger budgets everything got easy and suddenly women weren't able to be directors you go well hang on it's like <laughs> it was the it was such a uh it felt like um you know just sort of blocking the idea that it actually had got a lot easier for the men in many ways <laughs> well in fairness to the men i will say that it probably didn't get much easier because the schedules were still insane you know nowadays we expect something some films take six months or more to shoot you know certainly if you're talking about a, a justice league or something that was a six-month shoot plus reshoots um I think Avengers, Endgame and Infinity War were even longer. Like they were insane, insane schedules that you were there for years, basically. Um, in those days, you were literally making a feature film in maybe two weeks, three weeks. So they were, in fairness, they were still very much under pressure. And you would have no time off between films necessarily. You know, you would quite often 
go straight from one production into the next. There'd be none of this pre-production, let's sit and have a chat about what colours we want for the blinds in the background of the bedroom. None of that nonsense, you know, back in those days. It was very much, oh, you finished shooting this film? Cool. On to the next. So, so yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to downplay that it was difficult for men as well. They did have problems too. Um, but, but there was a particular barrier that basically went up and prevented women from, from, those senior roles after that. And I suppose just to, so, you know, look at the time, I guess that those sort of time schedules made it difficult for women if they wanted to have children, if they, you know, the, the whole stereotype oh, of the women yeah. had to be at home with the child, then that is impossible, I guess, if you're doing a job where, you know, you have to be film after film and, and, a, and a constant schedule like that. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and it was quite normal to work sort of 15 hour days. You know, there was weekends were not really a thing that existed in Hollywood. I mean, one of the reasons that Hollywood became Hollywood was because Los Angeles wasn't a big union town when they started out. So there wasn't a sort, sort of strong union presence to argue for things like weekends or sick pay or any of these fripperies of modern life. Um so yeah, there, there was an element of that. And you will see like when you read kind of old um, star magazines, you know, that these kind of tabloids that followed the stars lives like the women are always emphasizing how much time they spend with their children even though you're kind of totting it up in your head and going but could you how when where was this <laughs> where was this fictional in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know the stars like they had to keep up this this kind of pretense they had to not just be glamorous super glamorous all the time but if they did have a husband and they did have children then they had to play the perfect mother as well you know so it's it's one of these things where we just put very very high expectations on particular women yeah which hasn't changed uh, remotely uh, especially well, no. yeah this week yeah. as we see with the, the Meghan Markle thing and everything it's so interesting well, speech yeah. that week and what one of the things I thought was fascinating is how especially in the early days, how cinema was focused on female audiences as well and, and how the mm. women were pivotal in the kind of success of cinema and everything was catered to this female audience who'd be able to come, you know, young women would be able to go after work and sort of um, housewives would be able to go during the day and fill these cinemas and provide all of the industry. And it just seems really interesting. To me. Where, where was the turning point where suddenly cinema was all about male audiences and male focus and big male-led films? You know, th- th- it mm. seems like that... We're in a very different place now from where cinema seemed to start. I mean, well, again, this is probably a much more complicated question for for proper historians. But I I think personally that that actually came quite late. That that shift came really quite late. I think it came in about the 70s, to be perfectly honest, because there had been... You know, there'd been ups and downs, certainly, in, in terms of how important sort of quote unquote women's films were before then. So during the war years, of course, when a lot of men are off fighting or otherwise engaged, there's a particular vogue for women's films. And that's when you get kind of Betty Davis and Joan Crawford really stepping up and being able to make their mark. Um but, and you had some up and downs. When the men came back, there tended to be a lot of men's stories to sort of get them back into the film. So post-war, you start getting a lot of kind of darker stuff, a lot of film noir, a lot of that kind of thing. But I think the real turning point is the 70s because Hollywood had a bit of a crisis of conscience, I think, in the late 60s when all of the old favourites started to kind of fail uh, at the box office and they weren't getting audiences in, they weren't getting people excited and people were going off and with loosening censorship laws, they were going off and they were watching these cooler, nudier um, European films that were coming in. And, and, you know, that was a bit, that, that was where the kind of young, educated people were going. And Hollywood was kind of panicking, trying to figure out how to get them back. I mean, something similar is happening now with streaming, really. So, uh, 
So their answer was to bring in this new generation of cool young guys who had all these cool ideas, who had grown up not just on the old studio films, but also on all these European imports and were able to kind of put those things together and make something that felt new. So you get the, you know, Coppola, Scorsese, Bogdanovich, um, and of course, uh, in particular, Lucas and Spielberg. Because Lucas and Spielberg basically came up with a model that kind of harked back to a lot of that early, you know, crowd-pleasing Hollywood stuff, but felt a bit cooler and a bit fresher and a bit newer and used all the razzle-dazzle that new technology was bringing in. And that was suddenly seized upon as not just a way forward, but the way forward. And that's the point when sort of young men became the driving force of the box office and it became accepted wisdom that they were the people you needed to primarily cater to. So even though in the 80s you still got star-led, female-led films, you know, Goldie Hawn had a career and, and making all those kind of Private Benjamin, all those kind of comedies, you're nine to five. You had female-led films, but they were sort of at a lower budget level. They were at a lower uh, status maybe in Hollywood and they were kind of um, seen as they became seen as niche really it's, so women became a sub interest group and not a primary part of the audience and I think we've been kind of defaulting to that ever since and there have been these cases of kind of received wisdom that get passed on that women do this women do that women don't want to see this or that there's no point they're kind of unpredictable I mean even in my time as a film journalist I would see these female-led hits come in and I would then see articles writing them off, each one as a, some kind of sleeper hit that no one could have seen coming. Wow. You know, Devil Wears Prada would be one year and Eat, Pray, Love would be coming in and Mamma Mia would be coming in. And every single time the box office analysts seemed to go, oh my God, who could have seen this coming? And I'm like, I, I feel like we could have. Yeah. I, you know, I just, I don't feel like it was a big <laughs> stretch to see that that might be successful. But there was this tendency to really particularise and otherize every kind of female-led hit that came in, whereas the male-led hits were seen as this replicable formula that could be done again and again. Um, and there were cases of, obviously, the, the full-on myth being passed along. So when the Sony email hack came out, one of the emails that came out of that was uh, a former executive at Marvel basically saying, look, female superheroes don't sell. Electra, Supergirl, Catwoman, all dreadful. And it's like, those, I mean, those are just bad films. You know, that's like <laughs> yeah. judging male superhero movies by, I don't know, Spawn and Howard the Duck. You know, it's, that doesn't mean Iron Man won't work, guys. So, yeah, so yeah I, I think, I think it's quite a recent thing that we've, we've seeded the box office to men in the way that we have. But I think it's now becoming clear in the last, really only five or six years, probably that there's been more of a pushback against that and more of an attempt to appeal to other people. That is absolutely fascinating. I, I, there was a, a thing I was reading the other day about how much George Lucas's wife, uh, Maria Lucas, was it Maria Lucas? Is that right? Mm. Uh, played such uh, a... Marsha? Ma yes, possibly. I, this is my terrible research here. I, I wrote it down and... Oh yeah, Marsha <laughs> Lucas, how awful. Um, so Marsha Lucas, this, this shows how, how many people know the role that she played, the important role. I can't remember her name, terrible. Yeah. But she she was pivotal, you know, and she was the one that decided Obi-Wan had to die. Sorry, spoilers for anyone. Um, but the, you know, Obi-Wan had to die <laughs> The first one, she was really pivotal to the storyline, and we just never had an idea. We all, you know, had no clue uh, that, that she really had a big. She's got a name in the credits, but it isn't really, you know, it, she, her, her yeah. story hasn't been told. And and I, I wonder if, you know, just even with films like Star Wars, um, 
you know, had it been kind of marketed as it's a Georgian and Marcia Lucas production, would that have kind of changed who it had been, you know, who the audience would have been, who it would have been aimed at? And, you know, it's all been kind of directed specifically yeah. towards kind of male-led uh, I mean, viewers. There have been very few, actually, surprisingly few um, husband and wife directing teams, certainly at the kind of higher level of Hollywood. There's a few in the indie sector. Um, there, there's very few. And I wonder if it is... What we kind of saw with the Lucases, what we definitely saw with Peter Bogdanovich and Polly Platt, where there's the guy sees himself as the auteur and is the front man and um, and everybody else is kind of playing rhythm guitar, you know. And, and I think so this is one of the things I wrote about in the book was the auteur theory, because I think it's been really uh, limiting in this sense, you know, it's it's a very useful tool for kind of analysing film and talking about film and promoting the importance of film as an art form. But it's very flattening because every single film is an is a collaboration of probably hundreds of people, but certainly dozens. And when you focus it all on this one guy at the front of the band, you know, you're missing out on, you know, the Keith Richards and the whoever else is standing next to him because it's not just Mick Jagger. And and sometimes, you know, the Mick Jagger figure isn't even the driving musical force. So, yeah, it's it's a really it's a real, real problem because you get these women who were able to work in these very important roles within the film, who were able to do great work, who were able to shape the film and who still didn't get credit for it and whose careers still suffered next to the the men who took all the all of the, you know, the lion's share of the plaudits. It's and that's kind of still happening, I think, you know, I just it's. I think it's a it's a problem of who we're willing to share credit with and and who we're willing to um credit with creative genius. It's it's the great man model of history as applied to film when, you know, there's there's huge social forces at work around those people. So, yeah, I, I it's it's a real frustration and it is a particular problem I think for women. Yeah. Yeah. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Helen in a minute. But first... 
Policing Bill sounds like a British dark comedy about parenting a troublesome teenager in the 80s who, also a policeman, haven't really thought it through. But it's actually short for the very uncomedy Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill that's being rushed through Parliament this week. It's being debated as I record this week's episode, and while there is a chance that amendments may get voted on, there's a greater chance, with the Conservatives having an 80-seat majority, that even with Labour actually voting against a bill for once, it'll just go through as it is and remain terrifyingly authoritarian, and at the same time absolutely fucking useless at reducing or being tough on crime. There's a lot to this bill and not that much of it has been scrutinised properly because of the speed it's being rushed through Parliament so that you know in a year's time a number of Conservatives who voted for it without question can complain about it and ask for it to be retracted. Joke, that was only about Brexit. This is clamping down on any protests against their policies so they're going to be super pleased with it for revs. So, bearing in mind that the Spy Cops bill, already voted through earlier this year, means that the police can now do crimes and not get prosecuted for them if they were undercover at the time, this bill will allow lots of other people to do crimes and not get in that much trouble for it, and then someone else to write bum on a statue of an old racist on a horse and then get put in prison for a decade. I'm paraphrasing, but what the government says it will do is give the police powers to protect themselves and the public, presumably from such threats as unarmed women with candles like on the weekend, and it'll introduce tougher sentencing and improve the efficiency of the court and tribunal system. I mean, will it? Probably not, because as has been talked about on this podcast several times with previous guests including Emma McClure and Jeff Whelan, tougher sentences don't make any immediate difference right now as the court system is so backlogged, not just due to COVID, but all the cuts to court sitting times, the Crown Prosecution Service, police investigations, the court and court buildings being sold off, there just isn't enough time or space and it's taking years and years for cases to get dealt with. Then any delay to cases caused by the state that aren't related to the offender are taken into consideration when sentencing them. So in theory, someone could do a crime, get a tougher sentence of, say, four years, it not get dealt with for four years. In the meantime, that crime persons could still be criming. And then when it does get dealt with, they get less time for crime because crime dealings took too much time. So despite the handy rhyme, in England, the government has very, very much made sure that if you do the crime, you may not actually have to do all of the time, unless, of course, it's writing bum on a statue. There are also some very concerning elements of what sort of crime the bill shows the government are worried about, with defacing of statues or memorials carrying a sentence of up to 10 years, whereas, as Labour have pointed out, you could get less for street harassments or assaults, domestic violence or rape. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised that the Conservatives value memorials more than people, because remembering those who've died is cheaper than having to keep them alive and have them asking difficult questions. The big worry, and why the word fascism was trending on Twitter today, is because it will change the common law offence of public nuisance to a new statutory definition, which is very vague and means it can apply to pretty much anyone and render all demonstrations and protests illegal if the police deem so. Previously, if you were being a public nuisance, it meant that whatever you were doing could be proven to cause serious harm to the public or section of the public, obstruct the public or intend to do either of those things, and that you're reckless to whether it will have such consequence. This new definition, though, adds a lot more to that. So now you'll be deemed to have committed a public nuisance offence if your action causes someone to die. I mean, that's fair. That's quite a nuisance. Suffer an injury. Yep. Nuisance or disease. Yep. Okay. Suffers the loss of or damage to property. Okay. I guess. Suffers serious distress. Hmm. Serious annoyance. What? Serious inconvenience or serious loss of amenity. What? So if one person says you've annoyed them enough, you can get arrested. You could get 10 years for singing I know a song that will get on your nerves, get, get, get on your nerves. You get 10 years for being too long in the loo and causing someone serious inconvenience i'm annoyed by everyone all the time does that mean i can endlessly ring the police saying that person didn't indicate before turning left can you arrest this man he's wearing red trousers i mean where does it end the big worry of course is if you are part of a peaceful protest and you cause absolutely no damage at all you can still face up to 10 years in jail because you inconvenienced someone or even annoyed them 
It's a pretty brutal way to take away the human right of protest. I mean, maybe we should all protest dressed as those moving statues and just confuse the shit out of the police. The bill will also give police powers to tackle unauthorised encampments, which while on the surface could worryingly apply to protests like Occupy or the ones Extinction Rebellion have done, it could also hopefully mean Boris Johnson next time he has a holiday in that stupid tent that he put on a Scottish farmer's field without any permission. Fingers crossed. It targets gypsy and traveller communities too, who previously could only be arrested if they did damage or were threatening. But now the police just have to suspect damage could be caused, and that's enough to remove their vehicles, which in most instances for those communities are also their homes. I mean, the police could look at you and decide, nah, I reckon in five years' time they'll push over a bin, and that's it. It's like the thought police if they didn't do much thinking on what they did was largely based on stereotypes in the Daily Mail. More than 150 human rights charities, unions and faith communities have spoken out against this bill, warning that it gives too much discretionary power to the police and the Home Office, something that after Priti Patel already made it clear how much she hated the Black Lives Matter and Extinction Rebellion movements and generally all of humanity is very, very worrying. I mean, when you have a government with an 80-seat majority who doesn't want anyone to be able to protest against their actions, it's just very scary, isn't it? Well, even scarier than it already has been, anyway. I think there's going to be some interesting ways that we can challenge this, though. I mean, really, how annoying does it have to be before it's an offence? I mean, would millions and millions of us all singing Baby Shark in unison on complete repeat right outside the Palace of Westminster, would that be annoying enough to cause arrest? I think it would be worth a try. And if nothing else, even if we did get arrested, that will never ever leave the police's head for years and years to come. And we get to shout doo-doo at the government, so that's definitely a win. And now, back to Helen. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was very curious, really, because you said it's the great man model of history and it is something that we've seen time and time again in every single yeah. industry and, and particularly in politics. And, you know, it, and, and I wondered how, you know, it, again, it's something that you, you mentioned in the book and it was something I thought was very interesting. That it was Sophie Webber sort of said that, that cinema has a potential to spark discussion about social issues um, and mm. can be educational. But I, I wondered how powerful Hollywood's effect on society has been and I wondered if Hollywood's silencing of women has contributed to kind of societal sexism or if you think it was the other way round you know is, has Hollywood been influenced by yeah. life or have <laughs> we because I mean I, you know I personally you know and, and obviously you, you know you work uh, in you know with Empire Magazine you, you have a life of, of films and watching films I've been very influenced by film in my life and I can't help but wonder if had I seen a lot more films female led from early on it would have changed mm. you know especially my life as a teenager I think you know it, it's and I'm just curious yeah. do, you, do you think Hollywood has been a, a leading force in, in sexism I don't know about leading. There is a real chicken and egg question here. Hollywood is definitely shaped by society. Um, the question of how much it shapes society is is up for debate. But there are films that have definitely changed the world. Like they have changed the world outside of film. Um, the the first and worst example is unquestionably Birth of a Nation, the D.W. Griffith uh, silent film, which was just super duper racist. Like there is no way around it. It is it is unbelievably racist and it single-handedly brought the Ku Klux Klan back to life because the Ku Klux Klan was dead in the water like it had ceased to be a thing and and it roared back to life after Birth of a Nation specifically after Birth of a Nation that was a specific thing in reinvigorating the Klan in the late 1910s and early 1920s so film can absolutely change the world uh the question is, to what extent, to what degree, how often? That's a much, much bigger question. I think there is, uh, there's been studies, right? There's been studies that show that in, a, in a, a discussion group, let's say a bunch of people are talking, men 
perceive the discussion as being female dominated once women talk 30% of the time. And men perceive the discussion as being equal if women are talking about 15% of the time, right? So there's a real disconnect between reality wow. and what we think is going on. And I think that's one of the reasons that you see this um, this this push back against attempts toward to move towards equality because at the moment we're at about 15% female directors of the biggest films. We're at a little bit under usually 15% of female leads. So men see that as equality, I think, on some level. Subconsciously, I'm not not all men, you know, but I think there's there's a, a real disconnect between reality and perception there. And I wonder if the same thing is happening in film and in real life, you know, because women in most parliaments tend to top out at about 30%. You know, that seems to be the level at which women stop progressing on sort of company boards and so on. That's that's a level at which we stop pushing for equality. And I think and Hollywood does the same. Hollywood does the same. Hollywood has women talking less than 30% of the time. In crowd scenes, women are less than 30% of the crowd usually. So maybe... If we start consciously thinking about this stuff in our art, maybe that changes our perceptions in reality. I don't know. It's it's maybe worth a try at the very least. It's probably easier than getting 20% more women elected to parliament. So, you know, why not give it a go? And and it's one of these things, again, I think there is uh, there's a moral case for it, obviously, just better representation, better opportunities for everyone. But there's also just an entertainment case. Like we have seen every, I genuinely think we've seen pretty much every possible variation on a man with a father complex whose <laughs> girlfriend gets kidnapped and has to go off and rescue her from the doodads. We've seen that. I haven't seen a woman in a wheelchair have to face the same dilemma. I haven't seen a trans woman face the same dilemma. I haven't actually probably seen very many people of colour face the same dilemma. So if you do that, you bring something new to the film and you give us something we haven't seen before. And instantly, even though you're you're playing with very familiar genre tropes, it feels like a completely different film. And surely that's worth trying and surely it's worth getting excited about. Oh my gosh, so much. So just, I mean, just, we've got to get past this era of re, just pointless remakes or repeats and have new stories and new, oh, dying for it. Absolutely dying for it. I, I mean, but, you know, you mentioned just then that, that there's, you say it's only about fifteen percent female directors in Hollywood, which is I mm. I had assumed that it was better than that. Which I mean it proves your point, I suppose. But I had assumed it was better than that because I um, you know we've had the Me Too movement. Um, I think there's mm -hmm. a greater awareness of like the the, the Bechdel test, uh, and I've always pronounced that wrong. It's Bechdel test, isn't it? And you know, and Bechdel test again, terrible. This is what the, the podcast listeners know. I am notoriously just shit at saying people's <laughs> names and get them wrong all the time. Um, so anyway, so Bechdel test. Um, but you know, there's a sort of great awareness of that I, I felt and I just it felt to me like things were improving so is is it is it better I mean obviously not better than the early 1900s when women actually had a major <laughs> role but is it better than it, it has been in in recent past uh, in Hollywood now are we seeing a greater sort of uh, influence from women again yes but, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> no we are we are I think things are things are tending in the right direction but I mean, okay, at the end of the 70s, you know, the Directors Guild and, and women in the Directors Guild started looking at this question of representation of directors. And at that point, in the previous 30 years, not 0.19% of Hollywood films had been directed by women. And in the next sort of 20 years, we'd get up to about 9%. And now we're up to 15%. So it's not 
a great level of of improvement, really. Um, and most years it's under 15, if I'm honest. Most years it's like 12 or nine, I think one year recently. So there is a long, long way to go until we get to parity. And of course, there are issues of, you know, experience. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to give the $150 million blockbuster to the person who's only made two episodes of TV. So you have to give them time to build up some experience, ideally. Although, of course, men do sometimes get to make that leap. So it's not always a, you know, very fair comparison. But the point is, we are beginning to see women get those opportunities. We're beginning to see Chloe Zhao make the rider, make a splash with that and go straight up to making Marvel's The Eternals. We're beginning to see things like um, Patty Jenkins having a career on the back of Wonder Woman and not just getting sort of sent back to small indie movies, but actually getting a pay rise for Wonder Woman 2, which if you note the timing on that took a few months of negotiation in a way that it wouldn't usually for a man in the same situation. But we're beginning to see these women get these big opportunities. And while that is, of course, a tiny percentage of female directors, it's nevertheless really important in terms of visibility because it changes the perception of what women can can do and what they want to do. Because there used to be this myth that women didn't want to make the big films for some reason. I've no idea why, but but genuinely you get male directors going, well, I, I just don't think they want to. I'm like, well, I don't know. You could offer, yeah. see, that'd be cool. Um so so there has been this this movement upwards and I think you are getting women who are getting these headline opportunities you are getting women taken more seriously you're beginning to get um gender balanced selection committees at festivals so they are less likely to maybe overlook female directed work or work about women that might have been dismissed as kind of more domestic more small scale less important before because we also the the topics we consider important also tend to be male dominated so that can be a problem as well so these things are beginning to change and i think hollywood is also beginning to be embarrassed which is really important they're beginning to be embarrassed about the appalling situation that they have right now and the absolute lack of um, representation that they have and they're beginning to try to take steps to change that so even just having that discussion is genuinely an important step it's only a step. It's not the answer, but it is a, an important first step. So these things are happening and that's really good. The problem is, as I say, we're talking a really, really low starting point. We're talking, you know, 12, 15%. So we have a very long way to go until we get anywhere near parity. And even then, women of colour are an even smaller percentage of that percentage, you know. So again, really, really long way to go there. And and we need to keep up the the sort of the pressure because I think that's going to be the real testing point and that's going to be the real issue and um, because if we take our eyes off the ball then Hollywood might do the same and just kind of default back to the same old safe guys that they know and that they've been working with for 20 years and and it's going to take a long time of concerted effort I think what I take what I take a lot of hope from is the fact that women are getting these opportunities first of all but also that women behind the scenes are working together more are talking are exchanging notes are mentoring each other um are creating in in the case of stars and and in, you know big directors they're creating roles for each other and not just themselves you know it used to be you'd set up a production company and that would make your films and now you've got people like Reese Witherspoon and Nicole Kidman and Margot Robbie making roles for other women too and I think that's a really really positive step in the right direction because it it keeps this pressure up and it means that the most powerful and rich let's be honest women in town are trying to change things for everybody else. So, so yes, but 
a long way to go. I was going to say, it must make quite a big difference as well. You know, for example, me too, but also I'm thinking of, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, diverse representation, um, you know, there, there was the Oscars So White campaign and that, that sort yeah. of social media pressure must have an effect on how embarrassed Hollywood gets about this because, you know, there were a lot of, while there was obviously a lot of quite toxic backlash to it, there was a lot of support for the people who'd been victims of um, the Me Too, uh, you know, uh, issues and also the, you know, the, the films that were ignored in the Oscars. So, White Scandal. And, and I, you know, I think, I, I don't know if it's ever been so visible to the audience before. Yeah. Uh, some of the discrimination that has been, I mean, I say behind the scenes, it's obviously quite being quite upfront, but, I, but, you know, I don't <laughs> know if it's ever been so visible or that we've been so aware of it before as, as a public. That's been incredibly important. And I think those kind of social media conversations really, really do have an effect on the studios because they realise that, you know, we can see them and we know what's happening. And, you know, if, if you're, I don't know, it was Kathleen Kennedy a few years ago was asked about the lack of female directors on Star Wars. And she says, well, we've gone looking and we can't find any. And there was just this huge outcry from women going, hello, I'm here. (laughs) You know, there are women out there, but this, I think what's happening now is people are trying to take away those kind of excuses. So yeah, I talked to a bunch of activists in my book and, and I'm not just talking about people who carry placards and stand outside studio gates. I'm talking about people who are being really practical. So for example, here in the UK, Victoria Emsley set up primetime, which is this network, uh, sort of an online searchable database of women in jobs in films. So you can put up your CV there essentially. And if, uh, you know, a department head genuinely does want to hire more women in your speciality, they can go there and they can find you. Um, so there's that kind of thing. Alma Harrell is doing something similar with directors. Ava DuVernay has started doing something similar in the US for underrepresented groups. These are really, really practical steps to taking away that excuse of we don't know any women. We can't find any women. It's like, well, here they are. Now what's your excuse for not hiring them? So so yeah, these kind of steps are beginning to change the picture, but that's happening because of these conversations that have happened online, because people have gotten out there and shouted about this enough that they're seeing that there's a, there's an appetite for change. That's absolutely brilliant. I had no idea about these things. That's what a brilliant way to just tackle this and go, well, you've got no excuses now. This is a, you, can, exactly. you can literally <laughs> Google it. Um, yeah, I, I, one of the, I suppose the last question I wanted to ask you really was, that, you know, we've had a particularly odd yeah, well, everyone's had an odd year. I don't know why I was going to say for films. Everyone's had <laughs> a terrible, awful 12 months. But, you know, the, the pandemic affected the film industry quite dramatically for quite a while. I know that yeah. the film found ways to come back at, at times. But, uh, you know, it has... Or will the kind of direct releasing of films to streaming, do you think that's going to be detrimental to equality in Hollywood? Or do you think it's going to help give more people opportunities? I'm speaking of a very specific example. I'm a big Marvel Cinematic Universe fan. And I know mm. Black Widow has been delayed and delayed and delayed and delayed. And oh, one of the supposed oh. excuses was that they didn't want a female-led film to not come out of the cinema because they thought it would look bad. Whereas I'm going, please put mm. it on Disney+. Plus. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know, is... is, is um, you know, how do you think that this past year is is going to affect uh, equality in Hollywood, or, or is it? You know, is it just mm. giving everyone else another another way to make things and put things out there? Again, it's a bit of a yes and no. So I think the the good news is that TV for a few years now and streaming in in particular has been a little bit more responsive to calls for equality and diversity, and there there are more female leads on TV than there are in movies, and there are there is better representation generally in terms of people of color, LGBT people, like 
TV's a little bit ahead of, I think, where film is, um, simply because every film nowadays is such a huge gamble or every big film that uh, that it's seen everything is, is sort of poured over and stressed over to a much greater extent. And I think on, on Netflix or something, they can throw things at the wall and see what sticks and be a bit more adventurous than I think the studios feel they can be. Whether that's right or not is another matter, but I think there's that perception is there. So so streaming is not necessarily bad in itself. Obviously, I personally love cinema. I want to see things in the cinema and that's where my kind of focus is. And I am somewhat sympathetic to that Black Widow argument. I don't want the first, the only the second solo female lead in the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe to debut on Disney Plus, much as I love it. So yeah, yeah, it's it, it's difficult because last year was meant to be a breakthrough year really for women in blockbuster filmmaking because we had five, which I wow. don't think has ever happened before. But last year we were due to have Birds of Prey, Black Widow, uh, Wonder Woman 1984, The Eternals, and the one I'm forgetting, Mulan. So five major blockbuster movies directed by women some several of them by women of color, which is again astonishing, all due to come out last year. And of course, um, Black Widow we're still waiting for, Eternals we're still waiting for, Wonder Woman got a curtailed release, as did Mulan, and Birds of Prey did okay. Didn't do, didn't set the world world alight. So it was kind of a it was a massive letdown because we had this kind of big kind of pivotal moment coming, and it's been very much derailed. What I think is important is that women as a whole don't get blamed for the fact that those films didn't do the kind of box office they were expected to do because, you know, there was a global pandemic in the middle of it. And that's kind of, I don't know if you've noticed, but that's been bad. So that's the worry for me is that, that women don't get the, you know, the blame for those films, first of all. Um, And I hope that going forward that we are going to come back. First of all, I think people, yes, we're used to watching great films at home on streaming. And yes, it's been a godsend during the past year. But also, I am absolutely jonesing for the cinema, <laughs> and I don't believe I'm the only one, <laughs> right? Me too. I and, can't wait. And I yeah. think there's, I think there's going to be, uh, there's going to be a, a case of people just being desperate to get out of the house and watch things in a different way. And I think, I hope we're going to have some incredible films waiting for us when we do get back to the cinema because we've got sort of a year and a half of these things backed up and just ready for us. And and what I'm hoping is we we enter a little bit of a golden age for a minute or two of just catching up on these big films and seeing them all together. I mean, you know, just there's there's nothing like the cinema experience, like that moment in Parasite where the door opened. If you were in a crowded <laughs> cinema, oh, my God, it was incredible. That moment in Avengers Endgame where that person picks up that one thing. Yeah. Not going to yeah. say what or who, but. Oh my, I have never heard or felt anything like it in a cinema. It was incredible just to be surrounded by people losing their minds. And there is no way to do that on your couch. There just isn't. So, so yeah, I can't, I can't wait to get back to it. But I'm, I'm really hoping that these opportunities remain open for female directors, for female-led projects, because that's part of what I'm excited about. I'm excited to see these things on IMAX, on the big screen, in a crowded house. You know, it's going to be... It's going to be awesome. Oh, that is going to be so awesome. I'm so excited about it. So I can't wait. I really, it's so funny. I was, uh, you know, pr- prior to the pandemic, just getting annoyed with the people that throw popcorn on the back row or the people that talk through a trailer. Now I'm like, bring it. I'm happy for everyone to talk through all yep. the trailers. I just want to be there sitting next to all these annoying people that keep their phones on during the first 10 minutes. I am happy for them all to be there. <laughs> I won't be. Give it, give it five minutes. I'll complain again. No, absolutely yeah. not. No, no. Phones off phones um, off you're not oh, allowed absolutely. to check messages just turn them off, people. <laughs> come on 
Um, thank you so much for having time to chat. I've absolutely been loving your book. And as I said, you've, I'm going to ask you the question that I ask all the guests in a minute about who you'd recommend. But already from your book, I've been watching some of the Alice Ski films online, which I mean, the consequences of feminism is just amazing. Um, the Cabbage <laughs> Fairy amazing. one did make me go, whose babies are those? Why are they being left on the floor? But other than that, it was brilliant. Um, so there's already a whole raft of, uh, you know, incredible um, just women in Hollywood that I didn't know about that I, I now want to check out the films of. Um, but as is the thing that I ask every uh, person that comes to this podcast, with the hope of furthering good information, um, just apart from yourself and um, obviously Empire Magazine and Empire Podcast, um, who, you know, what books, sites, writers would you recommend that listeners check out um, about, I suppose, the political and societal aspect of, uh, of Hollywood mm. and, and the film industry? Who are the people that you go to? I would uh, have a look at people like the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, um, which is a slight, slight of a mouthful, but it is a, it's one of the uh, the groups that is studying the the statistics on women in film. So they basically publish reports every now and again. And so if you're not convinced there's a problem, they have the numbers to show that there is a problem, basically. So they're very useful in terms of winning arguments with people, basically. Um, on a similar note, the Gina Davis Institute for Gender in Media. Let me just make sure I'm getting that right. Gina Davis Institute, Gender in Media. Um, is is looking to try and get a gender balance in screen representation. So they're very much in terms of what is on your screen. And they started focusing with kids uh, media. So you have all of these kids shows, I'm sure, you know, with a daughter, you've seen these, you've got four or five male characters and one girl. Yeah. So why? Why are we starting off with this ratio with our tiniest children and teaching them that that's the way things are? So they, they're basically worried about getting rid of that Smurfette character and giving equality to Smurfettes as well as Smurfs, if you will. So, uh, yeah, they're really, really interesting to follow and very, very good uh, to look at. The F rating is also really good. Um, they uh, they look at basically whether women were involved in making films uh, and they have thread a lot of festivals. They are fantastic. And then there's people I just love. Um, Angelica Jade, who who tweets at Angelica Bastien, um, is a critic for Vulture, and uh, she is just uh, has a fantastic perfect perspective on not just women but women of color and representation generally in media. And she is, I think, wonderful to follow. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of people out there. Once you start, you know, following one or two of these people, you'll get links to huge numbers more. And then the ones I mentioned before, things like Primetime and Array Now, which is Ava DuVernay's. Um, organisation are really, really worth a look. Thanks tons to Helen for having time to chat. Um, you can find Helen's book, Women's Versus Hollywood, well, I mean, everywhere that does books, really. I'd expect that if you found this podcast okay, you can probably find a book online. But if you are struggling, then try looking at bookstores, particularly independent ones that need sales, rather than, say, looking at Halfords. Halfords probably won't have it. And no, that's not just because they rarely seem to have the thing you actually need. That's like Halfords speciality. Um, but really, do grab a copy of Women Versus Hollywood. Um, I've been absolutely loving it. It's probably eye-opening, really fascinating. It's got truly incredible tales from the early days of filmmaking too um, and as I mentioned before it was Radio 4's Book of the Week and you can find all five episodes of that on BBC Sounds and the link will be in the pod blurb too uh, you can find Helen on Twitter at Helen L. O'Hara on Instagram at Helen 84 and of course Empire Magazine is EmpireOnline.com uh, the Empire Film Podcast is on all of the podcast getting places and of course you can actually buy Empire Magazine as a magazine too I know right big thanks to Rihanna for putting me in touch with Helen as well 
Who else to chat to for this here show? Let me know. All that rhymes. Uh, you, you can, of course, tell me all your podcastical recommendations for guests by dropping me a line at Parpolbro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you can have a peaceful gathering to promote it to me, but chances are the police will charge in and shut it down to protect the public from you being completely unthreatening. So, you know, as always, it's probably just best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you once again for listening, uh, especially in this week where it's been the absolute opposite of fun writing for it. And if for some reason you enjoyed knowing that I put myself through the unenviable task of mashing this lot together, then please do tell others to get on board the bandwagon of weekly despair, give the show a nice review on one of them podcast platforms and throw some money at the Ko-fi Patreon or ACAS supporter site. Arigato gozaimasu to Acast, my brother the last sceptic, Cat Day and Katie Coxall. This will be back next week when we discover Pretty Patel has put in very small print in the policing bill that she's allowed to act as a vigilante when a mask character calling herself the Grinner handcuffs a child and hands them into the police because they stood on the wrong side of an escalator. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Busback Butter. In line with the new government policy, Busback Butter is promotional butter made by churning it with the back wheels of several provincial buses as they all drive your favourite routes. A rich, creamy texture mixed with the taste of Britain, which happens to be mud, gravel, horseshit and roadkill. Plus, the buttery wheels mean they skid along to your stop even quicker. They might skid past it, but at least they're on time. Busback Butter, making butter Britain again. Build back butter, get butter done. Britain deserves butter, a clear economic plan and a butter more stable future. Are you thinking what we're thinking? Because it's butter. We're only thinking of butter and buses. Oh, God, help me. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.